following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, if you would turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, we are going to pick back up after the break we took for Advent uh, in our series through the book of Hebrews. It's called Never Better uh, because a large thrust of the book of Hebrews is laying out the idea that Jesus is superior to anyone or anything that we could put our hope in or trust in or or worship. And so uh, the idea being that kind of regardless of what else is going on in your life, if you are at the place that you know Jesus is worthy of your worship and you have received the grace of God by faith, then really, no matter what else you're dealing with, you've never been better. Uh, And there are also many things that afflict the human condition that without Christ will never get better. And so kind of the name kind of hits from two ways. So we've been working through uh, the book of Hebrews. I will kind of just remind you Uh, recap, if you will, where we've been so far. So we're going to jump into start chapter 7. Thus far, we've seen this author who, I told you in the beginning, uh, it's not definitive. The the author doesn't say who they are. There's lots of theories, and I kind of broke some of those down towards the beginning. If you weren't with us for the first part of this series, and and you're going to be for the rest, I'd encourage you to to go back and, and catch up, because when we're working through a book of the Bible, it's we take it in chunks, but it's one book, one letter meant to uh, be, you know, it was written as one flow of thought. And so uh, kind of sticking with us through the whole thing I, will be helpful for you not to end up just kind of stop and pop Bible reading, which is, is not really the way it's meant to be read. Okay, so uh, we saw the author first deal with the fact that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets and gave lots of reasons why that's the case. He then laid out a case for Jesus being superior to angels because there was problems in this time. And this actually persists today, maybe in smaller pockets, but worship of angels. And so he takes great lengths to say Jesus is superior to angels. And then he gets really touchy and starts poking at Moses and says Jesus is superior to Moses. And so at that point, he's probably really getting some people riled up, but he doesn't stop there. Uh, There is this consistent theme that We've already heard some sprinkling of, but he's really now, after chapter 6, kind of dealing with some application of what he's already said, he's going to really come back in harder now on this idea of Jesus as a superior high priest, a superior high priest than even the whole entire order of priests that came down through Aaron, okay? And so in the time of Moses and the law, God established a priesthood through Aaron, uh, and that's... problematic for reasons that I will explain as we move forward if we're looking at Jesus as a high priest. So that's, that's where we are at. So let's read chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and uh, then we'll get busy, okay? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed, the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so, to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Praise God for his word. Now, unless you are very familiar with all of biblical history and timeline, and pretty familiar with the argumentation of the book of Hebrews, you're probably going to need some help and, and some context. So let's see what the problem is here first, okay? Uh, 
<clears throat> what, what, what this, this author is dealing with the issue of Jesus as a superior high priest. And the first objection, particularly some, the author is writing to Hebrews. So a lot of the thrust of the book, why is the author having, taking great pains to say Jesus is superior? Because the, the main thing he's dealing with is this temptation for those who came out of Judaism and, and then came to Christ to be pulled back into either in part or in whole, the Old Testament system and all of its requirements to, to somehow fall back from trusting in Christ for salvation back into the good works uh, system of the law and the sacrifices and all of that. And so somebody hearing this author say, Jesus is a superior high priest, their, their first problem with that would be, well, hold on a second. This Jesus, this guy is not a Levite. And that's a problem, because God said all the priests were supposed to be descended from Aaron, who was descended from Levi. And so, for us, we might read it and go, okay, Jesus is a better high priest, cool. It may not ring a bell for us, but for them, this is a major issue. And so he needs to explain why he can talk about Jesus as a high priest when God said, in the time of Moses, no, priests come from Aaron. And this, this goes all the way to the degree of when other people tried to do priestly stuff, it did not go good for them, right? It went bad for Saul. Uh, Uzziah tried, another king who was not of the tribe of Levi. It was not his job to be doing priestly stuff. He tries to get in there and start doing some stuff, and what happens? The brother ends up with leprosy, okay? And it wasn't like, oh, that's a coincidence. No, God did it. Like, priests are priests, and that's it. They are, God set them apart for that duty for a purpose, and they were meant to be descended from Aaron. And so for this author to come along and say, Jesus is a better high priest. They're going to like, hold on, man. Every, maybe king, sure. Messiah, yeah. But hold on, bro. Not, not priest. Those are different. Okay? But we already see in this discussion of Melchizedek a strange blending that would have been difficult for them to understand. But we have to remember, it's really understanding the biblical timeline for this argument here is really important. We have to remember when Melchizedek came out and met Abram, this is, let's, let's just do the basics, right? Creation, fall, right? Flood, Babel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Then the tribes, then 400 years in Egypt, then Moses and the law. So this, this stuff we're talking about, what, what this author is referencing is many hundreds of years, before the law was ever even on the scene or in the minds of anybody. Moses was a twinkle in his daddy's eye at this point, okay? His daddy's eye wasn't even twinkling yet, okay? We're way back. And yet you have this guy, before a priesthood is ever established, do you understand, popping up on the scene and being called a, a, not only a king but a priest. What do we got going on here? Well, that's, and that's the point of the argument, okay? Jesus' priesthood is of a different order, not of the order of Aaron, it's of the other order of Melchizedek, okay? So, uh, just, this will be fun. Uh, <laughs> so, so, Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi, uh, Love City, but what tribe is Jesus from? Go ahead if you know it. Judah. Judah, right? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you may think, well, wouldn't it have been neater or cleaner if God's plan is to make Jesus the high priest? Why didn't he just make him of the, the line of Levi, and then of the line of Aaron. That would have been cleaner, wouldn't it? Well, <clears throat> I'm going to say to you that we don't know all the reasons why Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah, but there is one particular incident I'd just like to call to your attention. I feel like it would be, it would be a bummer to not, in the, if, since we're having this discussion of the, the kind of the lineage of Jesus back to Judah. I'm not even saying this is the reason Jesus is of the line of Judah, but I think it's just, it's striking and remarkable and something that maybe is easy to miss. So, Remember what we just talked about. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has sons. Jacob had a problem with favoring his children, right? And so Joseph was his favorite. That created problems with his brothers. Of course, Joseph also was young and not that wise. He had some dreams about his brothers and his dad bowing to him. And he runs in and says, hey, guys, I had a dream. You want to hear it, right? Like, didn't have the sense to know, like, maybe they won't like this. You know, maybe I should just shut up and see what happens, you know? He's, a, he's an oversharer, so uh, I know some of you know oversharers. None of you are one, of course. Uh, but 
so, so then what ends up happening is um, they, all the brothers are out with Joseph one day and they just, they've had enough of this guy. So they, originally they're going to kill him. The first thing I want to point out to you is one brother speaks up and says, well, let's not have his blood on our hands. Let's not kill him. Let's, we'll throw him in a pit and then we're going to sell him. And I think it's also interesting what they sell him for, 20 pieces of silver. It's also interesting that the name Judah has a Greek uh, version. Anyone want to guess what it is? Judas. Woo! I'm not, that's not even the cool part yet. Okay, so what happens? Joseph gets sold into slavery. Uh, he then ends up as a servant in Potiphar's house. Uh, he excels in all that he does. The blessing of God is upon him, even as a slave in this guy's house. But Potiphar's wife thinks Joseph is hot. Uh, I, I just imagine him kind of as a, like, you know, I don't know, like a Hebrew Bieber maybe. And she just has eyes for him. And so she's coming on to him real hard, and then Joseph uh, gives an example, I think the best example of how to escape temptation in all of the Bible, because she's like, hey, lay with me. He's like, no, I can't do that. I want to dishonor Potiphar, and you know, I, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And, and, she, and she's like, not taking no for an answer. She grabs the brother, and he slips up out of his tunic and jets, right? And that's like, that's, I've been telling young men that for a long time, like, you need a Joseph anointing on you, man. Sexual temptation, just run. Go outside. Do whatever you got to do, man. Get crazy about it. Joseph did, but it didn't matter. A woman scorned and all of that, right? So she uh, says that he tried to come on to her and la-da-da, so he ends up in jail, but then God allows him to interpret dreams, and then the Pharaoh, like big head honcho, has some dreams that trouble him, and so Joseph interprets those. Joseph comes to power as a result of that, leads the storing of food so that they can survive famine, uh, but there's a group of people not in Egypt and thus not benefiting from all of that food storage, and that's his family. And so they come to Egypt then looking for food, and then there's this exchange that happens. Um, they don't even know it's Joseph at first, but his brothers come and they're asking for food. Joseph knows it's them. And uh, so he gives them uh, food. They, they, they go back, but he tells them, I, I want you to bring my brother Benjamin back, after he reveals himself, bring Benjamin back if you come back, right? They come back, and what Joseph, what Joseph wants to happen is for Benjamin to stay. And Now, Benjamin is now the baby, and kind of the apple of his father's eye. And there's this point in the story where Judah steps up and says, no, man, don't, don't take Benjamin. If something happens to Benjamin, that's, that's going to kill my father, okay? Uh, did I say Joseph had already revealed himself? He hadn't. They still don't know. But he's just like, oh, you got a brother? Bring him. You're going to bring him and tell me. You know, that's going to tell me that you're telling the truth. Or whatever. You know, Joseph's trying to be slick. But the bottom line is, Judah steps up and says, no, don't take, don't take Benjamin. I'll stay. And what you see in that is Judah stepping up and saying, I'm, I'm gonna t I'll take his place. Is that ringing any bells for you? About some of what God was doing in having Jesus come from the tribe of Judah? All right, so I just, I just needed to say that because I don't want us to be bummed out that Jesus isn't of the tribe of Levi. It's real cool that he comes from Judah. There's more that could be said about it, but that just keep that, you know, think more about that and go read that in the back part of Genesis later if you don't have something else going on with your yearly Bible reading plan. Okay, so <clears throat> Judah offers stay instead of Benjamin. Uh, but, but as I said, to a Jewish person, Jesus is a priest, it just wouldn't compute, okay, because... He's not of the priestly order of Aaron, so, so the author of Hebrews reminds them uh, of a king priest that existed long before Aaron in the time of Abraham. And so that brings us then to this question, and buddy, is it a question, who is Melchizedek? And you would assume, I would assume, since he's such a major feature of this author's case, for not only the legitimacy, but the superiority of Christ's priesthood, then I would assume the Hebrew scriptures would, would tell us a lot about him. I mean, he's the linchpin of the argument here, okay? So what, but what do we find? Eh, not so much. We don't get almost anything about Melchizedek. As a matter of fact, in some ways, there's, there's more said in Hebrews 7 than even what is in the, the history. Uh, we see two spots where... Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament. One is in Genesis 14, and the other is in Psalm 110. If you read Psalm 110, uh, it is 
very obviously a messianic psalm, and it's then connected to the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. So that's helpful for this argument. This author saw that. But So what happened in Genesis 14? What do we, what do we actually know before, before this guy grabs Melchizedek out of history and says, Jesus' priesthood is of that order, a greater order than the order of Aaron. What, what, do, we even, what do we know about this guy? And, and what is the controversy that swirls around him? Okay, so let's talk about it. Uh, if, if you go to Genesis 14, there's, there's a group of kings, and they attack uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the kings there. And so what happens is Lot lives there. That's Abram's nephew, okay? And so they, those kings come, attack, they win. They kind of take all of the stuff from that region and a bunch of the people. Uh, somebody that was fast survived and got out, okay? So there's a, there's a survivor. He runs and tells Abram that his nephew has been taken, Okay, And then Abram sends a scroll to those kings who took Lot, and the scroll says, I have a very particular set of skills. I will find you, and I will kill you. I'm just kidding. There's no scroll in Genesis 14 at all. I made that part up. It's a reference to the movie Taken, if you have not seen it. But I will say this. Abram did go Liam Neeson, because he grabbed some dudes, and they went rolling, and tore those kings up, all right? Got everything back, got Lot back, the whole deal, all right? So uh, <clears throat> I, I think maybe Liam Neeson's character in Taken is, is loosely based off Abram. I don't have any proof for that, but, you know, it's, it's a theory worth considering, I would say. Uh, and so they, he goes, they defeat the kings, they come back, and then this happens, okay? I'm, now I'm in Genesis 14, verse 17, then after his return from the defeat of Kedolaomer, Kedolaomer, it looks like Cheddarlamer, uh, it's Kedolaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the most high God. Okay, so that's all, it's already weird, it's already unique. King of Salem, and he's a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, so Melchizedek is about to bless Abram. Here's Melchizedek's blessing. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And he gave him a tenth of everything. So what that means is Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. The writer of Hebrews says he gave him a tenth of the choicest spoils. Gives that additional detail, okay? Now, the only other mention of Melchizedek in the whole Old Testament, so that's it. Like, it's not a whole chapter on Melchizedek. It's literally a couple verses. That's what we have. The only other thing in the whole Old Testament is Psalm 110, which speaks of a, a holy king whose enemies will be made his footstool. This is verse 4 of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So because there's so little about him, as we tend to do, uh, folks, folks for some reason tend to zero in on the things that have less detail and like to conjecture, right? Um, I don't know, man. It, <clears throat> there's, I'm going to give you two... To, I'm gonna, first of all, I want you to know this is an in-house debate within Christianity. There are, there are faithful, brilliant Christians who have a different idea of, of who and what Melchizedek is. Um, there's probably some outer fringe stuff as well. I don't know. You know, the guy with the funny hair on History Channel probably thinks he was an alien. I don't know. You know what I mean? Helped build the pyramids. I don't know. But there's really two, there's really two main opinions that matter that we need to consider, okay? So who is Melchizedek? Many think that he was a historical human king priest, so a person that existed, historical, you know, we don't have any more details about him than we do, but, but that he was a person, and that seems to be the most maybe straightforward way to see it. Or there are many who look at what is said about Melchizedek, and how in, with such little information, we have so many dots connecting to him and Jesus, that there, there are many that, that see Melchizedek as, follow me on this, 
a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Okay, so this is that, that Christ somehow came in this form of Melchizedek, whether he looked the same as he did as an adult human after being born and later, that's all kind of irrelevant. There, but there are some, that, like the, the similarities here are too much. We think this is a, well, another theological term would be a Christophany. So a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. So, <clears throat> why do they think that? Well, verse, verse 3 here in uh, Hebrews 7 is part of why. Okay, so we've already got what we read in Genesis. We saw that. Verse 3 this is, you know, it's like, okay, we've got a king priest. That's, that's weird, right? That, okay, so that's already something we've got to try to figure out how that works. But then we got verse 3 of chapter 7. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Okay. <laughs> right. what, what does that mean? And, and so that's, that's why we have, okay, many who would say that this, what we have, how, how, does he, how does he have no beginning? How does he have no end? How does he have no genealogy? How does he remain a priest perpetually? And there's basically two ways to understand that. One is that the, the, plainest, the plainest way you could read verse 3 seems to be this guy is, is some, somehow eternal. And that would lead you to say, okay, well, this then must be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. However, you could read verse 3 as if, so the author is saying not that actually he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having either beginning days or end of life, but that according to the record, if you look at what we have, look back at the record of Genesis, there's no genealogy, there's no record of him being born, no record of him dying, no record of him ending his reign. And so like according to the record, we don't have any of those things. And, and, and that would be, so kind of how you see or understand verse 3 is probably going to determine, uh, taking all things else into consideration, whether you think Melchizedek was a human king priest before the time of Moses that God established and that he was ruler over Salem, which is most people think a Canaanite city that ended up being Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Okay. So, uh, it's, it's either that or this was Jesus popping up early in, in some kind of miraculous way. And so, you know, what do I think if, I mean, maybe you're thinking that and you care, um, man, it's really tough. And I'm, I'm gonna be honest. I think the I think the smarter you are and the more of the Bible you know, probably the less, it's going to, it's going to make you less firm on this <laughs> because I've seen very few people be comfortable making a definitive statement on this. Oh no, this is, Melchizedek was a human king. There's no way he was the pre-incarnate Christ or hundred percent. I'm sure he's the, he's pre-incarnate Christ. He's, he's not a human king because it kind of switches back and forth, right? The, the, you got the without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither uh, beginning of days or end of life. You have this, he remains a priest perpetually, but then you have this phrase, but made like the son of God, right? So part of it kind of makes you think, okay, this is a guy that was meant to point forward to Jesus and have a lot of similarities of Jesus, uh, pointing forward to this Messiah king priest who was coming. You, you, could, you see that in there, but then you also see this other part, it's like, man, well, how could that just be a dude? <laughs> you know, man, it's like, this has to be something more. So, uh, I kind of, I gave you all the verses about Melchizedek. I mean, you, you're welcome to go research more and read what other people have said. You know, you can get a lot farther into breaking down the, the original languages and all that, but you're really not going to find anything you haven't already heard. And so, our position here as a church is you're welcome to see that either way, because here's really what's important. Whether this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or this is a priest king that God uh, had placed in the historical timeline for, for exactly this purpose of meeting Abram and, and whatever else he did that maybe isn't recorded, but in, in, in a big way. Either way, this for sure is about pointing forward to Christ, right? I mean, just everything about it. I mean, I, I would go all the way to like, what, what, when I read to you from Genesis, what did Melchizedek bust out at the, at the post-war celebration? 
bread and wine, right? Now, remember the timeline, where we're at. We're at, we're at Abram, okay? We haven't even done Passover. We haven't even gotten to that yet. We haven't even done the Passover in Egypt. We're all the way back in Abram's time, and this brother's popping up with bread and wine. Like, coincidence? No, okay? So, so under any circumstance, which, whether you think this is, this is a Christophany, this is the pre-incarnate Christ, or you think this is a king meant to, uh, in, in many ways, kind of in a forward way, reflect Christ, um, that's really kind of the bottom line, okay? Either way, uh, you can't ignore him. And, and that's really, that's the author's point in bringing him up. The author doesn't go so far as to give us a clear answer on this thing we like to debate about, but what he does do is make plain, <laughs> you, can't, you can't ignore this guy's existence or what it means, because here's what it means. Really what he's saying is if someone wanted to reject the kingly or priestly role of Melchizedek, right? Because that's, you can anticipate somebody reading what this guy's saying and saying, well, look, man, they may, they may make an argument from obscurity. Well, okay, you got a couple of verses in Genesis. you got the one reference in the Psalms. How, how are you going to come in here and say that the, order, the priestly order of Melchizedek is greater than Aaron? Right? We've got, we can trace all of Aaron's descendants. We've got proof of all that. This, what do we even know about this guy? Right? That, somebody could push back against this whole argument that Jesus is high priest in the order of Melchizedek and Melchizedek's order is of a greater substance than even Aaron's. Right? Somebody that had been in the sacrificial system or maybe was tempted to go back to it or was defending it, saying this whole Jesus thing and grace and and, and, and no need for all the sacrifices and all that, Some, somebody could push him back against that and be like, man, wh- whatever. And, and here's, here's the author's point. Okay, if you want to take that position, if you want to kind of disregard Melchizedek, and, and yes, his, his short, and, and not a lot of detail, but the fact that he's in there, if, if, you, if you want to disregard that and act like that doesn't matter, you're, you're basically going to have to say you're smarter than Father Abraham. That's really his argument, because what does he do? He goes on to say, Abraham, Abram at this point, Abram recognized this guy's authority. Abram tied to this guy. And in a way, because since all the son of Levi were still genetically within Abram, he's also making the point that they all tied to him as well. That's his argument, right? And that's a pretty good dunk if you're arguing with Hebrews, right? Oh, Oh, so you want to disregard Melchizedek because you're smarter than, than Father Abraham. Is that what it is? Well, that's not what I was saying. You know, I mean, you know, right? He's got, he's got him. This, that's what, there's, there's, whatever you think about the book of Hebrews, the guy's good. Okay. Whoever this person is understood the objections that were going to come against the, the things that he was presenting, and he dealt with them effectively because that is what you're going to, if you're going to disregard Melchizedek's priesthood, Melchizedek's kingship, you're going to have to say, Father Abraham was wrong. Father Abraham should not have tied to this guy. And most Hebrews weren't about to argue with Father Abraham. You understand? Okay. So that's that part. All right. Uh, I would encourage us then to think, all right, so most of us here today, I think, are not tempted to go back into Judaism and a sacrificial system and all of that. So where, where is the blessing in this for us? I, I think we should not ignore the goodness and grace of God in giving these faith-affirming foreshadowings pointing to Jesus. And, and he does it so many times. And, and I don't know if we maybe are as grateful as we should be sometimes, right? Because this Melchizedek popping up, being a king and a priest, right? When, when God's going to say later, no, those are two different things. But way back here, we got this guy that was both. How's that work? That should already be causing question. This guy that pops up with bread and wine, that Father Abraham recognizes as someone that, that could be tied to, that pronounces this blessing. There, there's no question. That's, and that's, that's kind of why I'm not so hung up on, is this a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, or is this a historical king? Because either way, the real point is that he's on the scene to point to Jesus. 
in, in the same way, you know, so, many, so much of the Old Testament narrative is, is God in his great mercy and grace. I, I just hope you're grateful for this. I hope, because so many people act like, this is, like God hasn't been clear or something, or like, well, he, he could have made things more obvious. It's like, how do, how do you say that when you start reading? With the, I mean, you can go all the way back to the, the ark and, and how there's one door in and salvation comes by the, you know, obeying God in that. And then you got entrusting him by faith. That's the only way you're going to be saved. And then, and then you got, uh, then you got Abraham marching Isaac up a hill with wood on his back to be the sacrifice, but then God provides another sacrifice, right? Like, and you just keep going and Melchizedek pops up with bread and wine and, and on and on and on and on. And then we get to Joseph who's betrayed by his brothers and thrown into a pit, but then is raised to a place of prominence where he is the only one with the power to save his brothers. Need I say more? You know what I mean? Like God over and over and over and over again, not only gave us all these foreshadowings, but he he made a definitive promise. This whole thing kicked off all the way back in Genesis 3. Amen. Amen. When he said, yeah, there's a serpent, it's going to bite his heel, but he's going to crush its head. There's a seed coming that's going to handle this problem that just got started because of your sin and disobedience. And the, and the rest of what we see happening is the unfolding of God being faithful to that plan. Melchizedek's a part of that. So are we, are we grateful for that? Are we grateful that God in so many ways, tilted his hand and pulled back the curtain and, and showed in, in so many specific ways. Like, because here's what I'm saying. Because of Noah and the ark and because of Ab- Abraham and Isaac in the hill and because of Melchizedek and because of Joseph, like, particularly for the people in Jesus' time, like, but, but also for us today, looking back, it's like, if, if there's a question in our mind, man, is, is Jesus the one? Is he the seed of Genesis 3? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one we should have been looking for? Is he the one we should trust? Yes. <laughs> and, and God has made that very clear in so many ways. And that is something we definitely should be thankful for. <sighs> All right. Now, that's, that's really the main thrust of what the first 10 verses are about. Is, yeah, I know you're freaked out that Jesus isn't, of the line of Aaron, but here's why that doesn't matter. He's of a greater order, the order of Melchizedek. And then he's defending even that by saying, Abraham tied to this guy. Okay, so, but I think we would do ourselves a great disservice if we don't take time to discuss everybody's favorite Bible topic since it's staring us in the face. Anybody want to guess what I think everyone's favorite Bible topic is that's staring us in the face? Tithing and giving, yes! Man, how would we leave these 10 verses without mentioning that? So, uh, here's the thing. <laughs> you know, a, thrust, a main thrust of the argumentation here is honor was shown to Melchizedek and shown to God. Because, so why, why was there a bread and wine party? Why was there a tithe given? Because Abraham just came back from defeating armies, overwhelming odds, to bring back Lot, his family, and, and all of these spoils. And so it's, it's out of gratitude. This is, it's, it's gratefulness to God is what all this is about. And so <clears throat> I'll start by saying this, when it comes to tithing and giving, our official position as a church is that uh, we do not teach the tithe as a commandment or requirement of those under the new covenant. Because we don't see the command to tithe given clearly in the New Testament. That, is, that has been and is our official position. However, I have to say, and I have to concede this reality. This whole thing that is brought up here in Hebrews 7, which is referencing Genesis 14, I, it is the strongest argument that I have seen that tithing should be a commandment and a requirement for folks under the new covenant. I also need to say that this is another thing that within the family of Christianity, people disagree about whether or not tithing 
transfers over into the New Testament as a command and as a requirement, okay, for obedience. And what does tithe mean? Tithe simply means 10%. So what is this? That means Abram took the top 10%, the best 10% of everything he brought back, and he gave it to this representative of God, Melchizedek, the priest, okay? And, and in so doing, he's not giving it to Melchizedek, he's giving it to God, which is very important. I think that's a lot of times where people get hung up when it comes to giving. Uh, they're, they're too much thinking about, I don't know how to say this another way, if if you give here or you're visiting today and you're part of another church, you're not giving to the pastors of that church when you give. That, and, and you really need to be careful about if, like, because that could go either way. At the negative, it could be like, oh, I don't like what they did or I don't like what they said or blah, 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 blah. I'm not giving. So it could work that way, which is dead wrong. Your focus is off. Or on the other side, which I, I'm almost more concerned about, is like, I really like what they said. I really like them. I really think they're great. And so I'm going to give. don't do that. You're not giving to men, you're giving to God. Yes, God uses men to assemble that or to to, uh, collect that and then to use it for the furthering of his kingdom and the preaching of his gospel. Yes, I mean, there's there's not one of those vacuum tubes at the bank that goes straight to heaven, right? And I haven't seen it yet. If you found one, let me know because that'd be dope. I'd like to just check it out, see how it works. Um, this, this is the way God set up for this to be done. He has established in the Old Testament, it was, it was priests. You, you came, you brought your sacrifice. A big part of what the sacrifice was for and, and what the offerings did was allowed for the priests to be able to survive and perform their priestly duties. And so you see that translate into the New Testament with pastors and shepherds and leaders in the New Testament church. Okay, so there are differences, but there are also similarities. So what I, I guess what I'm so what I'm saying to you is our official position as a church is not that the tithe itself is a commandment that translates into the New Testament. We we don't see that strong enough to take that position. We don't. But I'm I am saying those that do churches that do denominations that do I totally get it and I think it's a solid argument to reach back and say this the, because again where are we at when when. Abram tithes to Melchizedek, we are hundreds of years before the tithe was even established in in Moses' time with the law. So this tithing that Abram did was way before God ever showed up and said, my people are going to tithe. And and, and so that is is an argument that I've heard and seen, and there's a lot of legitimacy to that. I would still say, if... God's intention, and again, I'm not trying to argue with brothers that disagree. And honestly, I know there are people who are a part of this church that don't even agree with our official position. There are people that are part of this church that are like, look, man, I was raised that God said tithe, so I'm tithing. And it's like, amen, hallelujah. As long as your motivation is not legalistic or you think somehow you're, you know, you're earning your salvation by obeying that or, you know, there's even worse iterations of like specific blessings or protections promised from God if you tithe. All of that's garbage, okay? Flat out. But if your conviction is, no, I, I look at all that the scriptures say, and I think God does expect his people to tithe, then you're welcome to hold that position. I'm just telling you, officially for us, I, I, I'm going to read you something that Paul said on giving. And, and I, I, to me, I think Jesus would have said something really definitive on this, or, or Paul probably would have said something more definitive than what I'm about to read you about the tithe transferring over as a requirement. Now, those of you that have been excited by what I've said thus far, you're like, oh, hold on. I don't have to tithe. I'm, I'm going to get you. Just hold on. We're not done yet. It's going to get worse for you probably than you, than, like, than you thought it would, but just let me get there. I need to read you this. Okay, so here's, here's a... This is not all the New Testament says about giving by any means, but I think it's one of the places where what the New Testament does say about giving is summarized best. Okay, you with me? It's a good good summary by Paul of New Testament teaching on giving. I'm in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, Now I say this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The one who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one must do just as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. He did not say there, you need to tithe. What he did say is, each one must do just as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. He also said that God is able to make grace overflow to you so you always have sufficiency in all things. I think it's the NIV. This, this set of verses was formative and foundational for Natalie and I. when we, we got married at 18, so we had to figure out what are we doing with finances, what are we doing with giving and all of that. And this, these verses shaped the way we've tried to think about it for the last almost 20 years. The, the way the NIV says it is, you've been made rich so that you can be generous on every occasion. And so there's lots that needs to be dealt with there. Some of you see yourself as wealthy as compared to people everywhere and at all times. Some of you don't. Some of you are in genuinely difficult financial situations. Some of you have a great abundance. There's, there's a wide variety here, which is something I love about this church. But um, the promise here is that God will always provide to the sower so that they can sow. He will do that. He's made that promise. Okay? And so, this is not always true, but sometimes you may not have to sow because you're not a sower. Oh, okay. All right. We like that one, huh? Don't you think God knows? And, and don't be a fool, man. Don't think, well, if I won the lottery, I'd give so much. Listen to me. I have, I know a lot of people that have a lot of money, okay? Just through business over the years and stuff. I know, I know people that are believers, they're generous believers, but without fail, every one of them has told me. As my business grew or as, I, as my wealth grew, it did not get easier to write checks. The bigger the numbers got, the harder it got for me to write it. Okay, so what's, what's the, and, and that just bears out a biblical principle. If you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. So just don't, don't fool yourself into thinking if you're not faithful with little, you're going to be faithful with much. And, and don't, fit, don't fool yourself and also realize you're not going to fool God on that one. Like, he knows, okay? <laughs> gotcha. Here's a good question. Um, <clears throat> what, you, you can answer out loud if you want. Or maybe you don't, because you probably can tell I'm working a setup here, so most of you are probably going to sit there quietly. That's fine. But what comes to your mind first when you hear the word worship? Okay, that's good. What, what was it? Praying? Okay. I think for a lot of us that's true. Uh, I can genuinely say that like, when I hear the word worship... It's been so beat into my head, partially because I've beat it into my own head, that all of life is worship. But, but, when I, but I'm really being honest. When I hear the word worship, what, what the image that comes in first, just experientially, is singing. Either singing by myself or singing with all of you. Or, and I'm just, I think we should ask ourselves, do we think that tendency for singing, either congregationally or on our own, do you think singing would have been the first thing that came to mind for people in the time of Jesus? I don't think it would. Because I look through the Old Testament at the times where it says somebody stopped to worship God. More often than not, what I see happening is sometimes an altar being built, but then something was getting slaughtered. There was a sacrifice being made that was going to cost somebody something. Why, where and when did our mind decide that primarily worship is about singing or even prayer or any of these other good things we said or obedience? It is those things, but boy, there's, there's something to how often leading up to the, I mean, go through the whole scripture, man. I, I think in the time of Jesus, when you said worship, more often they would have thought we're giving something to God. Primarily, first, that would be the first thing that hit their frame. 
And let me make sure I say this. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of singing as worship, okay? At all. David sang. There's a whole book of songs in the middle of the Bible. It's the biggest one, okay? It's called Psalms. Uh, who, Mary sang after hearing the news that Jesus was going to be awesome and the Savior. Simeon sang when he held Jesus, all right? Jesus sang with his disciples at the Last Supper before going to Gethsemane. Paul sang in a jail cell. God responded to that. So singing is an absolute um, <clears throat> viable, legitimate form of worship. There's a reason why we spend a decent portion of our time gathering together singing to God. It is good, and it's right, and it's biblical. But should it be the first thing we think of when we think of the word worship? And how has it that giving to God has kind of been knocked down the totem pole so far or then ended up embroiled in so much controversy? And here's some of the answer to that. We can be honest with each other, can't we? Some of why that's happened is because there have been so many people who have done exactly what Peter said not to do and have puffed themselves up and acted as if they were pastors or cared about God's people or were leading God's people and they did it for what Peter calls sordid gain. There are charlatans and there are hucksters and there are people who, and, and, and here's the thing we got to remember, that stuff makes the news, okay? I've never seen a news story that said, local pastor serves his congregation for 70 years and then dies without any controversies, never cheated on his wife, never stole the money. That's never been, I've never seen that on the news. It does happen all the time, you just don't hear about it. But let a pastor end up sleeping with a bunch of women or stealing a bunch of money or doing whatever, that, that is something that is probably going to get reported on. And I'm not saying even that's a bad thing. Yes, tell on them. Bust them out. Expose them. Yes and amen. More of them need, all of them should be exposed. I hope they are. Okay. But uh, that is part of why it's even, it, it's gotten weird for pastors to stand up and teach what the Bible says about tithing and giving, right? Where a lot of times pastors will get to Hebrews 7 and go, oh gosh, now I'm going to have to talk about, and I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm just ignorant. I, it doesn't bother me, like, because ultimately I'm just telling you what God has said. You can think what you want about my motives or whatever, and if, if you, ha well, that probably sounded too cavalier. Honest to God, if you have questions about motives and any of that, like what we do as a church with the giving that comes in, uh, why I'm doing it, why anybody's doing it that's a part of leadership here, please come talk to us. I, honestly, I won't be offended by that. None of us would. We'd be happy to have those conversations because there's nothing to hide, man. And I understand many of you even have probably not just heard about stuff where people have done crooked things. You've probably been in those kind of churches and been hurt by it. And so, of course, that's going to affect the way you think about it. But Today, I'm just trying to deal with the fact that Abram went and fought a battle with 300 guys, whooped everybody, came back, and when it was time to worship God about it, gave of the choicest of his spoils. What else do you want me to do? You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is where we're at, okay? So, I don't think any, any of you, maybe most of you are really that mad about it anyways, but I know it, it can be weird. For some reason, it has gotten weird, but it shouldn't be. Because not only do we have what Paul wrote here, which is a good summary of New Testament teaching on giving in uh, 2 Corinthians, you know, Jesus didn't say, where your singing is, your heart is also. Now, let me say this. I'm, there's some of you are maybe brand new Christians, or some of you don't like your own voice or don't like to sing. You know, some of you, I'm, I'm kind of assuming that you think about singing as worship, or that you enjoy singing <laughs> to God, uh, you may not even be there, and, and I hope you can grow in that, because that is something that is a blessing, and God enjoys our singing, and I hope you do too. But what, what I'm trying to get us to is, for many of you, it's, it's not, there's not any kind of arm twist, or it's not that hard for you to sing, and you do think of that as worship. And, but man, when it comes to giving, things get weird. Oftentimes. And it just shouldn't, man. That's not how it should be. Uh, and giving is as much at least a part of our worship to God as anything else we would do and put under that umbrella. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say it, it may even be a bigger piece of the pie. Because Jesus didn't say, 
where anything is your heart is other than your treasure. And you can flip that statement around and not take anything away from it. Where your treasure is, your heart is. Where your heart is, your treasure is. So what, if Jesus is trying to say, if what he's giving us is, hey, you know, you're bouncing along, trying to serve Jesus, you know, how do I know if I really do love him or I really am following him or I really am cheerful in the fact that I belong to him or I really do have a grasp. Abram knew when he came back from that battle that God had done something amazing because impossible odds were broken in order to, for them to have that victory. And so he was thankful. His heart was full of gratitude and he gave. Are our hearts full of gratitude? How do you know? Am I, am I grateful for what God has done for me? How do I know? Well, Jesus said, <laughs> where your treasure is, your heart is also. So I'm going to do what this, the author of Hebrews did with the whole Melchizedek thing, right? Like, all right, if you want to disagree with what's being said, go argue with Father Abraham, okay? So if you want to disagree with what's being said right now, go argue with Jesus. I'm not saying anything other than what Jesus said. You got to figure out what you're going to do with it, all right? Amen. Okay. All right. <clears throat> it's interesting that Abraham gave an acknowledgement of God's goodness in helping them beat impossible odds. And the last thing I'm going to say is our giving should be motivated by the same thing. And what do I mean by that? Well, we can actually go back to Melchizedek's name to, to get a picture of what I'm talking about. Because Maybe none of us have taken 318 guys and defeated four kings or anything like that, but um, if you sit here today free from slavery to sin, then impossible odds have been broken. And, and you really see that kind of spelled out, maybe not super clearly, but I'm going to try to clear it up for you. What did it say Melchizedek's name means? First of all, king of righteousness, and secondly, king of peace. And those aren't actually things that typically would go together. Normally, you'd have to pick one or the other, particularly if we're talking about our relationship to God, right? Because if you're going to insist on righteousness, you are going to be at war with a perfectly holy God. If a perfectly holy God is going to hold the standard of righteousness over everybody, then we would not be at peace with him. So how is this guy king of righteousness and king of peace? Well, it, Jesus Christ is the only one that's ever been able to bring those two together. The cross of Christ is where justice and mercy are able to embrace, where righteousness and peace can happen together. Because what God did is didn't hold all of us to the standard of righteousness. He held Christ to the standard of righteousness. Christ lived up to that standard and then died in our place, taking the punishment we deserve for not living up to the standard, and then rose from the grave and now the good news has come to us that if we will trust in what he did, if we will trust in his character, if we will trust in his sacrifice, if we will trust in God's grace alone, that we can have righteousness accounted to us as a gift by faith through grace. And friends, if you don't like what I said about giving today or you don't like the idea that churches collect offerings or even tithes, if you have a real kind of just nasty attitude about all of it, it's, there's, a, there's a really great chance the beauty and the absolute wonder of the fact that we can be saved by grace, it, it's probably not reached your heart yet. Because if you really realize how big the odds are that have been beaten by God for us in order for peace and righteousness to exist together, for us to have peace with God, that our enemy of sin and death was defeated for us, Man, gratitude is going to flow from that. And, and that cheerful giver that might sound like a fairy tale to some of you in, in Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians, it can become a reality. And, and that's, really what, that's really what I'd like to push for today. I swear to you, I ha, I, I'm in Hebrews 7. That's why we're talking about this. I have, I, I, nothing that I'm saying in my mind connects to, okay, well, today I bet the offering will be bigger. L listen to me. Historically... 
they're, they're smaller every time I say something. I don't know if you guys are just rebellious or what the problem is, but ultimately I don't even care. This to me is not tied mentally to what actual giving comes into Love City Church. What this is about is your heart before God. That's what matters. And that's a big part of why we don't teach a strict tithe here. Because honestly, if you look at the teachings of Jesus and what grace does to a person, what grace, ex- what happens to the expectations of a person's conduct under grace, so many people think like, oh, whew, now we're under grace. I don't have to worry about all that law stuff. It's like, hold on, man. Do you not understand? Jesus came and said things like, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy as well. Like once, once the grace of God actually hits you and does its great work in your heart, it, it, the, the expectations around stuff like this doesn't get lower. <laughs> That's why what we encourage people to is, I'm spitting now. Good Lord, look what you're doing to me. What we encourage people to is regular and sacrificial giving and cheerful giving. That's, that's what we ask people to, for them, if you're married, you and your spouse, to talk to Jesus and figure out what that looks like for you. For some of you, that, you the reality of your budget, that, that may, you may really sacrifice, and, and it, it may be less than 10%. And, and we're not, personally, we don't think God's bringing a hammer down about that. Of course, there's an other side to think about that. You, you know, there could be the exertion of faith towards that and, and trusting God to make up the difference, sure. But it just the letter of the law and thing doesn't seem to translate as far as the elders here are concerned. And so that may have even been an overstatement, but because <laughs> we may not even 100% see all that exactly the same. But our official position here is not that we're going to just beat everybody up about tithe or that we're going to have you turn in tax returns because that's a real thing some places and make sure you're tithing. Uh, but we are going to encourage you to give generously, give sacrificially, and to do it joyfully. Uh, because that for sure, like no matter what you think about the tithe or not tithe in the New Testament, there's zero room for just stingy and not give anything and not think about it or care about it. There's zero room for that. Like if, if I'm going to presume to be following Jesus, I'm going to have to engage with this reality that part of what worship looks like is giving of the finances that God has entrusted to me. Not getting away from that one. And, and I hope you don't want to. All right. But praise God that Jesus, like Melchizedek, is a king of both righteousness and peace. And may whatever we do in our giving be motivated by that beautiful truth. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for this brilliant argumentation that leads us to an obscure little reference in Genesis. But Lord like so many great mysteries that are written today and probably copy what you've done, um, this seemingly obscure character has a real important role in the overall story and narrative. I thank you uh, that there was this Melchizedek, king of righteousness and king of peace, and that he brought bread and wine to the celebration, the victory over those who had sought to decimate uh, Abram's family. And, And I just thank you, Lord, for... What we've seen here today, that it's a miracle, Lord. You, you, you overcome overwhelming odds. You've done it for each of us. And I just ask for your help, the help of your Holy Spirit, to cultivate in our hearts an ever-flowing fount of gratitude. Please don't let us get to the place where we are not overcome with gratitude for all that you have done and you are doing, and even looking forward to the promises of what you will do. Um, there's so much. You've given us so much to be grateful for. There is no excuse uh, for us residing in a place of ingratitude or, or the selfishness that invariably comes after ingratitude. We're just help, asking for your help, Lord. Thank you so much that your word does say very clearly that you love a cheerful giver, that you love it when we can enjoy giving to you. And God, I just ask that you would help us, help us to for that to be the reality, that, that, we can, that we can give in the way that does please you. Because legalistic uh, giving to, to, to try to absolve ourselves of guilt or giving out of guilt, your word says that doesn't please you, Lord. But it does please you when out of hearts of gratitude we're able to give freely and generously and with joy. Lord, help us. Help us 
do that. Help one of the things in our life that brings us the greatest joy is to give to you for the furthering of your gospel and for the expansion of your kingdom. We love you. Thank you that you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.